using your network and just having a broader aperture of the world, it's this day and age. And you're right. I mean, even in York IE, we, and definitely in York IE portfolio companies, I've been hiring people I haven't even met yet. And again, you get more comfortable with that when you're hiring through your network. And that's, you're right, no different than that for international expansion as well. Welcome to the Going Global podcast, brought to you by Globalization Partners. Hire anyone, anywhere, quickly and easily. Use our AI-driven, automated, fully compliant global employer of record platform, powered by our in-house worldwide HR experts with 97% customer satisfaction ratings. Globalization Partners, succeed faster. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Going Global, the podcast where leaders of high-growth companies tell us their own stories of going global and building global remote teams. I'm your host, Diego Mendiburu, and remember that you can find all episodes of this show on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. On today's show, we are going to interview Kyle York. Kyle is co-founder, CEO, and managing partner at York IE, where he sets the company's vision of building a hybrid strategic advisory, investment, and operational growth firm. Kyle works closely with entrepreneurs and investors to help them realize their shared ambition to build good companies, create new jobs, grow generational wealth, and impact the world. Hello, Kyle, and welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Kyle, I think we have to start by saying that you are an entrepreneur yourself that was able to sell his company to a giant like Oracle. That means that you have a ton of experience that you could share about challenges and growing a business. But I would like to start by asking, how much do you think you knew at the beginning about global expansion when you started your company Dyne? What things do you wish you knew from the beginning to be more prepared for global expansion? Yeah, so it's actually a great question. Thank you. You know, honestly, I didn't know much. You know, I actually I actually um, joined the second wave of Dyne. Dyne was actually originally a consumer-oriented business mm -hmm. uh, that was all sold through e-commerce. And when I actually came into the business to help them build the B2B enterprise, version of the business and the next iteration of the business, it actually already had consumer customers and small businesses through the e-commerce experience throughout the world. So one thing I always like to remind people about globalization, international expansion in the internet age uh, is you can't, you can't actually uh, control where your leads or where your customers might come from when you practice a digital digital inbound marketing or digital demand gen strategy, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's a definite reality of the experience we had in building Dyne. By nature, by, by the breadth of the technology, by our go-to-market motion in the very early days being e-commerce, we just had customers globally, right? As we went up market and as we started to think about how to service those and support those customers, how to sell more of them as it became more enterprise customers and B2B customers, that's truly when we had to think very differently about globalization around our infrastructure, our people, our teams, our, our legal tax ramifications of different things. And honestly, frankly, uh, none of us had done it before. So, you know, there was so many blind spots, so many things that we learned over the years of doing it right and wrong. That obviously shaped today what I do with York IE, which, you know, we're an investment firm foundationally that invests in B2B software businesses and, and we help them think through the right time and uh, how to approach doing it. But it's on the backs of all those learnings, as you mentioned, that you know we were kind of clueless on out of the gate. 
So based in that previous experience, you just mentioned there was this transitional period between, you know, the, the sales with clients and, and then a more corporate sales approach, uh, B2B approach. Uh, what was the first step you took and was it the right one? I mean, because we're talking about localization of the product, marketing changes, of course, infrastructure changes to support more uh, clients. What was the first step and uh, do you consider it was the right one? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. When I, when I came in to outline the sort of enterprise B2B approach, you know, what we really did right away was define the key vertical industries and the key market segments that we were going to work with. Like, are we going to be chasing Fortune 50s or are we going to be going after, you know, the high traffic websites in the world, right? That might be more mid-market or startups. And we decided on the latter. And then we decided that, you know, what key verticals for us were going to be the right verticals that would have a match of the business value prop of our of our infrastructure technology, which was really all about security and performance. And you really had to like your 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 website or your web application truly had to be your business uh, for it to make a lot of sense. Um, so honestly, out of the gate, um, we didn't put like humans or bodies on the ground internationally. We actually shrunk down and tightened up our inside sales motion in our in our brand to be able to you know, just kind of climb up from that self-service methodology to more of an inside sales, call it like a sales assist methodology that would help scale on and onboard these customers. Frankly, wasn't um, till we then had a, a groundswell and a concentration of customers globally in different regions of the world that we then say, okay, let's think about this a little differently. Do we now need to enter Europe? Do we now need to enter Asia? Do we now need to put bodies and in, in infrastructure on the West Coast of the United States? That started to come sort of, we let the, the customer demand and the customer adoption drive that, which, you know, a lot of times this is a little bit of a, of a challenge for companies. They view international expansion as a lever to get more customers, which it is, but, you know, how do you know it's going to work? And I think one thing that we naturally had was we had natural adoption and natural customer acquisition happen globally that then pulled us to then better support them. You basically stole my question because that's exactly what I was going to ask because usually we hear and sometimes when you read, uh, you know, um, blogs about how to go global, the first recommendation is do market analysis and, 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 and think very well where you want to expand to, which countries. But basically you're saying that there's a possibility of doing it the other way around. Like first, just go global, do a product that can be used by anyone, anyone, anywhere in the world. And then you start collecting data that can give you insights to decide, okay, this market is big enough, let's focus and let's try to make maybe a, a localized marketing strategy. Is that the right way to do it? W would you recommend any of those paths? Which one well, is better? Yeah, I mean, I believe so in the internet software, internet infrastructure, software as a service game that I play in, right? Because I mean, this is in essence renting technology through the internet, right? I mean, that's what you're doing, right? So, I mean, even, even where this podcast is being listened to, right? Anybody in the world can go to Spotify or can go to iTunes and they can, uh, but you know, the, the reality is like anybody can listen to the Globalization Partners podcast and, you know, you might not be marketing to them, but they may find you. And over time, if, if more and more people find you from Germany or from England or from Singapore, then you're going to start to think about maybe we should start to do some localized marketing in those areas or, or do localized support in those areas or, or bring on more guests from those areas. So that's the way I view anything that's internet software 
um, that's inbound marketing, that's acquired through digital channels. It gets different than physical goods companies where you have supply chain and fulfillment issues. It's obviously different in professional services businesses where, you know, it's really more human to human interaction. Um, But in software, that's exactly what I recommend to companies. And I also always talk to companies about understanding the knobs and levers of your business, right? So um, what I mean by that is every company in our world um, is going to have like a foundational product they sell or a platform that they sell, but it's also understanding the knobs and levers available to you for growth. That could be international expansion. That could be pricing changes. That could be new product portfolio. That could be new channel or distribution partners. That could be you know, tripling my sales team. That could be mergers and acquisitions. Like, like there's lots of knobs and levers, both big and small that exist in a company. But I think the best companies in the world mechanically know functionally what their sales and marketing GTM machine is. And then they, they can make some bets and soft bets. And I think 80% of a company's go-to-market and long-term model needs to be attached to the foundational machine they're creating. And then the knobs and levers can be 20% of test and trial and error to see how things shake out. Now, Kyle, I think you've written about this, but there are some companies out there that may have not been selling necessarily or having huge profits, but you know have a lot of investor backup behind them and that they do want to go international. So maybe they don't have that specific data that can tell them, you know, we are indeed selling and having a lot of revenue in this specific market. Let's go and establish a formal office there. So how can entrepreneurs assess that their company is ready to go global? What kind of indicators would the investors, for example, like you look at, even if revenue is not necessarily the, the best indicator for one specific company? No, it's a great point. I mean, I think you're right. The media darlings and the venture capital-backed companies with lots of capital from tier one venture firms globally have, you know, kind of different playbooks they're playing. Um, I, I do think, though, you know, your point earlier on, like, assessing a market opportunity um, is still a big part of it, right? Like, you know, what other competitors and comparators are already adopting customers in these markets? Uh, what are potentially the legacy solutions that are provided to customers in these markets? That's a regional question. That's a uh, market segment, market size question. That's an industry vertical question. But again, you can learn from how customers or, or prospective customers are satisfying the needs of your technology. And you can get a good, uh, we call this a market in approach to decide how you should position your company and grow your company. Most startups are uh, innately founded by technologists and engineers who have a very product out approach. They see a gap in the market from a product perspective, a feature set perspective, a feeds and speeds perspective. They build that IP, they build that technology, then they try to figure out how to bring it to market. What we try to do at York IE, when we work with our portfolio of, of investment companies or consulting customers, we try to look at it much more market in, which is deciding market size, total addressable market, serviceable addressable market, comparators, competitors, pricing, packaging, all the way back to what go-to-market motion makes sense from e-com to inside sales, to field sales, to channel sales, but then also um, international as a strategy. I mean, it's a massive lever for companies like, and we'll get into it, but like when we started to add international expansion, it was almost like um, free net new revenue. It wasn't free, but like, it was incremental net new revenue. It was like, it was like, wow, like all of a sudden I 
can get some quota coverage in a different part of the world that's not competing with my North American uh, sales team and quota coverage. And all of a sudden, it was just additive. Like every dollar we got just helped our growth rate uh, be a little bit better, right? So we'll get more into that. But I think it really does come down to um, that market in approach. And, and even if you have no money or you're backed by 25 million of venture capital or 100 million of venture capital, you still need to evaluate that market in approach. Tell us more about that. I mean, wh what the difference international expansion made for you guys? You just told us it was what I understand is, of course, the, the investment that you needed to do for international expansion was little compared to the incredible amounts of, of revenue that international expansion gave you. But tell us more about that experience. Yeah, so first and foremost, um, I told you we were brought there internationally by the data, right? So our second sort of geographic spread, we're, we were headquartered in Manchester, New Hampshire, so not necessarily a, a tech hub. We're about an hour north of Boston, so we're part of the greater Boston, New England tech scene. Originally, we were like focused on North America as a company holistically, right? And we work with web brands. So uh, the better your Alexa rank, uh, the more, uh, the better of a target you were for us, right? So web traffic dictated the consumption model of how much you paid us, right? Or how much you might be able to pay us. So we actually first took our inside sales team from uh, Manchester, New Hampshire. And what we did was we added a pod in Silicon Valley, right? So that was the first expansion that we did outside of our core headquarters was we created a pod uh, on Natoma Street in, in right off Howard in San Francisco. And we said, hey, be more at the events, focus more on the Silicon Valley, you know, the internet darlings. Let's find as many of the venture back high growth consumer apps who need our technology and let's start there because we were already winning them from Manchester, but we knew we could go win some more, right? Yeah. This, the second thing we did, um, so it was pretty easy, actually. What we did was we moved a couple sellers from New England to California. That's how we did that one. And it was a quick way for us to accelerate our expansion. Again, not quite global yet. We were still in, in the United States and North America, but it gave us a different reach. We also had that team manage Asia Pacific. So anything that came in from Asia actually was managed by the team that was now just closer by time zone to the uh you know, customers that we had in Hong Kong or Singapore, or Australia, or those types of areas. The next thing we did was a little bit more unorthodox, but I think it's really critical. When we expanded into Europe, I went to Europe and I was the company's chief revenue officer. And my responsibility was to go to Europe and make sure there was a market. So what I did was I really blitzed, again, pre-COVID world, right? We're talking 2010, 2011, 2012, that period. I blitzed the event circuit for technology in Europe, right? So we're talking the next web conference, the web summit, uh, these types of these types of conferences, the e-commerce expos in London. Um, and we just went to all of these different conferences and we used it as an excuse to be there and meet with the customers that were in our data set of already uh of already had found Dyne to be our customer base. And what we really did is we did the exact same thing we did in North America. We we without even having bodies on the ground, we started the Look at the five key verticals that made sense in Europe. We then looked at the market segments that made sense in Europe. We looked at the buyer personas of the existing customer base that made sense in Europe, and they were a little tweaked from North America. And then we got customer case studies and testimonials and references, and we rode the backs of those great companies to the next customers that we acquired. And pretty quickly, we realized that it was pretty tricky for Kyle York to leave headquarters as much as I was. I think I was going over to Europe, you know, 
maybe once a month or once every other month for that whole year. We ended up hiring our first managing director, putting some salespeople, some support people, some BDR people, and some marketing support in country, right? We actually originally dropped down in London, English speaking, similarly culturally aligned to the United States, brought some of our cultural core tenants to the UK office, but also let them be them, right? And that's something that I always, always recommend international expansion. Like, don't force your culture on them. Take the core tenants of it, but let a let a natural culture of that environment, of that region, of the leaders in place in that office uh, organically develop. And, and that worked really well for us as we landed in, in Europe for our first international expansion. I have to ask this. I mean, you just mentioned that you crashed some events and, and made... Uh, person-to-person connections, what would you do now considering remote work and, and COVID and then the pandemic and all the measures of uh, social distancing? No, it's a heck of a question. I mean, so so first off, before the COVID question, I recommend that um, North American companies thinking about going global always send over um, someone who represents their business from an evangelism perspective, uh, from a product perspective, from a go-to-market perspective, from a culture perspective, to go be the person who's getting the lay of the land and doing those market studies and meeting those customers, talking to partners, doing the recruiting. Um, I always think that idea of like transplanting someone for a short-term period is the right, the right move to make. Obviously, in COVID times, if you're trying to do this, frankly, I would candidly look at all the knobs and levers in my business and I might delay on international for a hot minute, right? Um, not, not from actually going there or marketing there or driving customer adoption there, But if you're just thinking about creating a new office there and hiring teams there, I might just give it a little bit of time, right? I, I think we're we're in a we're in a weird time in our history, but I also don't think it's going to be a time that lasts forever, right? So you know, I definitely think I'd put someone there, you know, hand to hand. I in this day and age in COVID, I'd probably try to find some partners uh, who are in the relevant space or who have distribution potentially in these new regions, and you know, use your network. You might actually find somebody through your network who is a great first sales hire or is a great first managing director. I think more more so than ever, I've seen this in our investments business, our advisory business. I'm having to do way more back channeling of shared connections, of uh, background checks, of, of more of an interview process, more Zooms uh, than ever before because you're not getting the face-to-face sort of uh, hand-to-hand combat or relationship development that you used to be able to get. And I believe there is a paradox because nowadays it is more um, usual to have uh, people working remotely anywhere in the world. Maybe their uh, responsibilities have nothing to do with sales or marketing, but right. they are part of your team. And maybe you already have people somewhere out there that already know that those markets, because they are working for you and for your company, and maybe those people can be the, the ambassadors for a eventual international expansion, right? Well, that's absolutely right. And I actually like, you're reminding me Um, when we first went over there and when I hit the streets, you know, in, in the UK and in Europe, we actually had a partner back then that was a customer and, and also a partner who worked on, they built e-commerce websites for European companies. And they were actually based in Wales. And, and they were actually the one, when I would go over there to meet with all the customers, they were the ones who were like, hey, you should meet the managing director of Rackspace Europe. Hey, you should meet the managing director of Pier One Europe. Hey, you should meet this sales gal who's a friend of mine. So, so I think just using your network and just having a broader aperture of the world in your network, it's this day and age. And, and you're right. I mean, even in York IE, we, and definitely in York IE portfolio companies, I've been hiring people I haven't even met yet. 
right? And and again, you get more comfortable with that when you're hiring through your network. And that's you're right, no different than that for international expansion as well. Now, of course, after investing in more than 75 startups over the last decade, what are the most common mistakes entrepreneurs make when pursuing their businesses' international expansion? What what's those mistakes you see repeat once and again and again with, with the companies you invest? It's the cultural thing I talked about. Mm. I think number one, you know, you need to make sure you're hiring the right DNA match and the right aligned brand representatives for your company, right? I think we forget that the first hires you make that are outward and they're in other regions of the world. Uh, even if it's an engineer who's coding at a desk, these are people who are wearing your company name on their shirt. Their coffee mugs have your company name. Their LinkedIn profiles have your company name. And it's really tricky to establish an aligned cultural uh, tenant when it's international or when it's global or when it's remote. So I think it's really, that's one mistake I'd say. And that's why I think you end up seeing transplants like I did at Dine, you know, go over for a while and play the field and see who's around and recruit the right types of talent. And then, you know, stay a while and, and stay connected and communicate really well. So I think that cultural tenant's really important. Secondly, one thing we made a big mistake at in Dine actually is our first office was in Mayfair in London, which is like the equivalent of being on like Madison Avenue in, in New York. Like it's it's the most expensive, you know, neighborhood in, in London. And and we're in a Regis, you know, so it was a shared space, but it was still incredibly expensive. And the talent for us to hire in London when our headquarters was in Manchester, New Hampshire, and we were bootstrapped, we were not venture backed. London was the wrong location for us, right? We were we were based in a in a secondary market. So we actually ended up moving the office down to Brighton, England, which is an hour south of London. So similarly how we're an hour north in Manchester, New Hampshire for Dines headquarters, our actual European headquarters, our EMEA office um, was actually moved to Brighton, England. And that's where it scaled to about 50, 60 people at the end of the Dine run um, when we were acquired by Oracle. So that was a good lesson too. It was, it was we were trying to copycat a lot of our peers mm -hmm. in going to a major city in Europe. And what we realized is for us, being in a smaller city and being the employer of choice in that city was actually a much a much better fit for us. Thirdly, it's also hiring the right the right leader at the right time. Uh, we actually ended up with two different managing directors. We had one managing director who was the right guy at the right time. He he had built lots of businesses. He was a, a small scrappy startup guy. He knew how to form the limited company over there. He knew how he knew all the employment law. He knew all the different gutches that we wouldn't have known. And, and we worked with a company back then, just like Globalization Partners, who helped us figure out all the tax, legal, different issues for us. But he was the right guy. He had come from IBM, but he also had startup experience. He was the right guy at the right time. What we realized just a couple of years in, after we had moved the business to Brighton, when he, he actually was a little bit too corporate and a little less of a player coach than we thought we needed. So we ended up hiring our second managing director out there who was uh, more of a fast growth riser uh, in his business career. And he ended up being the guy who I think built a new and modern wave of Dine internationally. He ended up actually helping us then go launch uh, our Asia Pacific office. And we were, we were two pronged. We were in um, Singapore and we were also in Australia. And then he also was the one who ended up when we were inside Oracle becoming my global head of sales after the acquisition because of his DNA globally and obviously because Oracle's footprint is so global. Um, so I do think it's really important to have that type of person. He had also been the type of guy, he, he, he came from, his dad was a, a Shell oil man and he was a Shell executive. 
So he traveled the Middle East, he traveled Asia. As a child, he lived in all these different places. So he had an understanding of the unique cultures and all the places we ended up having customers that you know could just relate better or differently than a Yankee from New Hampshire, right? And in the United States. And so I think really understanding those three things, right? The culture, uh, the locale, and the leadership. Um, and you know, you're not always going to get it right the first time, but understanding that you you really want to make sure those things are solid. Uh, to have a great global strategy. I think you just touched a bit on this, but I mean, I, and we know there's no playbook about this, but if a company wants to quickly acquire market share in a territory, what strategy is usually more successful? You know, like merging, acquiring a similar company and just absorbing the talent, finding an expert that can help you in this first initial phase of adaptation, Uh, or, or just establishing your office right away? What signals can make easier to decide between these scenarios? Well, I actually don't think those are binary necessarily. Um, the partner I mentioned earlier was a company called Incutio. Mm -hmm. We actually ended up acqui-hiring their team. So um, it's funny, as I replay the history that we did, right? It, like maybe it wasn't the playbook or anything out of the gate, but when I, as a revisionist, and I look back in hindsight, You know, we actually ended up in acquiring that six-person team, and it brought us a couple SEO experts. It brought us a couple developers. It brought us a great marketing leader. And again, they actually were integrated folks. Some of them actually moved down from Wales to Brighton um, for this. So it, it was a real hybrid. It, it was it was you know finding the core customer base, networking with the customers, the partners to find more talent. You know, hire some foundational talent and leadership. Aqua hire and tuck in the team that gave us a little bit more scale and reach. It also gave us a little bit more um, diversity, right? A lot of times when you do go global, it's typically is around sales, marketing, go to market, customer support, those types of things. We ended up having a fully functioning office with engineering, with technical operations. You know, we ran a, a 24 by 7, 365 global network. So if our network had issues and websites went down, Um, so we needed people following the sun from a support perspective and from a technical operations perspective. And so the offices, because of acquisitions, ended up giving us a well-rounded team, not just a bunch of salespeople or a bunch of marketing gals. We were able to basically have a, a full functioning end-to-end -end operation um, where every leader in our company, from our CTO to our head of finance to our head of HR to our heads of marketing and sales, all had team members and team leads globally distributed. So, so again, I, I don't think that's binary. It's also very opportunistic, right? Like you might just find the perfect match to acquire. I mean, to this day, I remember in Brazil, there was a company called Pinpoint that was a managed service provider uh, for infrastructure and security. They still exist. Silo Britain runs the company. And we came really close to acquiring them and having a South American presence. You know, it's hilarious to me to think back. We never ended up having a South American presence, but we were within weeks of acquiring, acquiring this firm and merging them in. And it, that could have been a catalyst and a lever for our growth that we we never turned and we never pulled. Um, but it was a great opportunity for us. So this is the way I would think about it. Um, when we went over into, lastly, when we went over into Asia Pacific, we were looking deeply at a company called Meta CDN, Content Delivery Network, um, uh, in And we didn't end up buying MetaCDN, but their managing director, um, it was a startup, their managing director ended up leaving and becoming, or their CEO ended up leaving and becoming our CEO when they couldn't raise, or our, our managing director in region when they couldn't raise a, a round of funding for that startup. So again, these things are opportunistic. They're not binary. They're kind of fluid. 
I think you have to have an entrepreneurial lens on the strategy and you got to be able to bob and weave based on you know, the balls that bounce in your direction. Now, now, of course, when you tell it now and, and you go back, it makes sense. It was the right decision at the end. But do you remember what kind of indicators were you looking at when making those decisions? Was it pure revenue or what are things made you feel, yes, this is the right choice. This is the right person. This is the right office. This is the right location. This is the right strategy. What made you say this is the right thing to do? Well, like I said, a lot of the decisions were data backed. We were fortunate that we had, you know, some data, you know, to tell us about the customer base, the revenue, the expenses. One thing that was really interesting for us is when we were thinking about hiring and scaling, we were at a level at the time we went international where we were a fast growth company, right? On the track to 100 million of ARR. And so we were trying to figure out like, how do we get an extra million here, an extra million there? Or how do we get two more quota carrier, carriers in our sales team. And, you know, and we were looking at, honestly, North American concentration. We were doing incredibly well in North America. So we had to unlock and open up new growth levers and new growth opportunities. And one of the ways was simply, let's put quota carriers outside of the place we are already saturated, right? And so it was the data, it was the, the quota model and the scaling model and the revenue targets. And then it was some of those softer, instinctive things around the leader, the locale, the size and scope of office. Um, and for me, I look at it in hindsight now, but even then, I was just looking at how do I get extra points of growth in our growth rate, right? And, and trying to think strategically about, I can put five more bodies in Manchester, New Hampshire, or add five more bodies to our San Francisco office, or I can put five more bodies in Europe to sell. Or I can add a five-person team in Singapore and go after a whole new market that is only finding us if they accidentally trip into our website, as opposed to us having a marketing strategy that's integrated internationally. I mean, it, it may sound obvious, but maybe it doesn't. Uh, you have a great product from, from what I understand, and you already had a, a huge user base and interest for many companies in the US. So it was natural to go and, and seek new clients somewhere else. But maybe some companies don't have that. And maybe yeah. that's the conclusion. Maybe it is not time to go global if your product is not ready, right? And I mean, if your own local market, you don't see that growth, maybe you have to reconsider redesigning or pivoting or doing something different before trying international expansion, right? Well, it could be very distracting, right? I mean, if all of a sudden you're having to manage people in different time zones around the world when you haven't even got your house in order, um, yeah, I think it's probably premature. Um, and the house in order could be business operations, it could be support, it could be product, it could be technology, it could be all these different things, right? It could be financials, it could be all, all these different things. So yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, What I will say, though, is if you hire the right leader and the, and the leader happens to be from your space or an adjacent space who knows your buyer, right, um, knows your buyer by having sold to them before, knows your buyer have been, having been a buyer of, of like technology before, that can be a tremendous catalyst to enter a new market. If the leadership you hire and the team you hire is well networked in that environment, assuming the product's ready and the business is ready to support it then that's a, a tremendous, tremendous um, shot in the arm for you internationally. So that's why I always say, like, if you, if you, if you as a leader think your company is ready and your product's ready and it's not a big distraction and you can put the time and energy and effort to that global expansion, someone in 
North America and your executive team needs to own global expansion, right? Like someone has to own that. It can't just be a, a community effort that everyone's kind of thinking about. It needs to be a part of someone's job. But then once it is, like I said, it's finding the right team and leadership internationally that can represent the core tenets of your business to the market, evangelize your services, put together your go-to-market strategy in that region, and then be accountable to deliver it in the constraints that you've created for them. So uh, yeah, that's the, that's the way I, I would think about it. Again, these things are they're squishy. I, I forget the dive experience. I mean, having invested in so many darn companies and you know, I have companies that I've advised or sat on boards of or invested in that are now $15 billion public companies. I have companies I've invested in that are pre-revenue and just getting off the ground. The reality is the advice is not the same advice for each company, right? The, that's when I say there's no playbook. There's core mechanics and core things you need to do should you decide you're ready to go internationally. When I say there's no playbook, it's not like the playbook of how every company should go internationally at the same time. They all they all manifest themselves in very, very different ways. Um, this just happened really nicely with a company I'm on the board of called Ascent Compliance um, out of Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Um, they just opened an office in Amsterdam, hired an MD, are scaling the team. Um, but again, one of the co-founders uh, who actually recently left the company, his last job before he left the operating, he's still on the board, but he left the operating company was, I'm going to go to Europe and get us a great leader who I think can represent our business internationally. And he spent a year as his kind of last project as an operator of the company he co-founded 10 years ago, um, making sure that the company was a global company and was able to attack the international market. And once he, once he got that foundation set, he said, okay, I'm a startup guy. I'll stay on the board. I love this company. We're doing great, but I'm going to go do a new startup. Um, I think we've got the company in great hands. You, you are always one step ahead of my questions, and I love that because that's what I was going to ask you. What I already asked you about mistakes that some companies have made in their global expansion. Let's look at the other way. Uh, what examples of great go-to-market strategies for new territories can you share with us that you've seen in the startups that you have invested in? What made them unique? Yeah, so I think... Um, the ones I like to point to are the ones where that do sort of what I just said about Ascent and uh, Ascent did basically what Dai did, right? It was, it took someone like me or took someone like Matt Whitaker and said, go over, get the lay of the land, understand the community, the environment, the events, the partners, the customers, the talent pools, uh, the competitive landscape and, and the cultures and figure out what our strategy needs to be. Another one I've seen actually that's, and then hire, and then hire and leave. Right, like hire well and leave. Another strategy I've seen work really well is um, in global expansion is actually to take that person and leave them there. Uh, a friend of mine, Ryan Burke, ran Envision internationally, uh, which is a, a UI prototyping technology company. Um, you know, and he went over for three years and, and lived as an expat. Uh, he's from Boston and he lived in London for three years. And and I've seen a lot of. Um, Managing directors uh, have a lot of success traveling the world, moving their families, helping get new companies or get companies, new offices internationally off the ground. And so that's another strategy that I've seen. Um, and then the last one is really um, the one I mentioned that is probably most relevant to COVID times, which is the networking, you know, in, in the Zooming and the, the collaboration and finding an MD from like company or like market, building a rapport. And then having that person then do a lot of the groundwork to build the infrastructure and team around you. And I think those three strategies um, are all sort of the same, but I've seen them all work incredibly well across several companies.
Okay, we're reaching the end of the podcast, but I still have two more questions, if you allow me. Um, and this one, of course, I, I believe is probably one of the things that worries the most some entrepreneurs out there that might already have a successful product, but and they are looking for investors, but maybe they don't know if they share the same vision. So, so how to find an investor that shares the same international expansion strategy as a group of entrepreneurs? Yeah, well, I mean, like anything else, you know, uh, communication is a two-way street. Uh, one thing I like to remind entrepreneurs is that every time they raise money from venture capitalists, they're selling a little bit of their company to a, to a financial services firm. And I think oftentimes um, financial services firms have different um, ideals, have different goals, have different customers than your company does, right? So if you think about it, a VC, traditionally, they're uh, a private equity firm. Their customer is the limited partner, the money, the pension funds, the endowments, the high net worth individuals, the family offices who are investors in their fund. That's their customer, right? So again, I think the communication up front and the realization that you're selling a little bit of your company to somebody else and making sure that that marriage is one that you're willing to get into is it, whether it's international expansion or any other topic, you need to make sure you're philosophically aligned, right? Um, so the only way to do that is the same way you'd hire somebody, you have to back channel, you have to interview them. You got to remember you're the free agent, you're, you're the company that they want to invest in. And that's not the way it feels when you're fundraising as an entrepreneur. It feels like you're selling, selling, selling and groveling and begging and trying to get capital. Um, but at the end of the day, you got to remember that's a two-way street. So I think that's the, the biggest key um, to international expansion or anything else is making sure that you communicate and you talk about those things before kind of getting in bed together. And, and finally, Carl, you've said that there are managers and there are builders, uh, but growing a business probably needs both. How can startup founders get experts to help them when designing and implementing their global expansion? Where do you look at those experts, where they are and, and how can you reach them? Well, absolutely. So um, when I say there's builders and managers in any context, what I basically mean is there's the people who can figure out how to go build an international strategy and how to go execute an international team. Like, like hiring the person from IBM who's run thousand person orgs when you're, when you're you know, a support woman, a marketer, and a salesperson in an office of four people is a very different skill set functionally, right? So I think when I say builder versus manager, I just make sure hire the right people for the right time and stage of your company to be in the right positions. If you need builders, hire builders. If you need managers because you've reached a level of scale, hire managers. Um, also, what I'll say is, is find the right partners in the right firms. And I don't want to, you know, I've never worked with globalization partners. I know this is your podcast, but it's critical to find experts who understand the rules of the road, the regulations, the policies, the tax, the legalities, um, the way you can do contractors versus full-time employees, like all the way you do everything like this from the leases you get to the liabilities you have, to the insurance you have, all these types of things are very, very critical to think through. And they're, you know, you're not the first company in the world who's ever gone international. So make sure you, you seek advice, seek counsel. But when it comes to day-to-day -day execution, where I always, you know, I, I don't, even though I, I'm an investment firm, you know, we, we take an operator first viewpoint and we, we're entrepreneurs at core and, and we want to be an extension of the operating teams we back. And we always remind the entrepreneur that you are the CEO of your company. You're the CEO of you, you Inc. Um, you need to make sure that the people that you let into that family are the right complementary 
parts and, you know, but also are accountable to the opportunity that you set forth for them. So this is, a, again, a, a thing that is only solved by um, uh, uh, <laughs> knowing what you know, knowing what you don't, pulling in the appropriate resources, um, and then executing with the right type of talent, builder, manager, based on where you are and, and what skills you already have at the table. And, and in the end, the less time you spend uh, on red tape and laws and regulations, the more time you have for your product and, and, and sales, right? Absolutely. That's what I mean about the execution, right? I mean, building something from scratch, whether it's a brand new startup or a brand new region is really, really difficult. And you're going to have to uh, iterate and evolve and adapt. And it's not going to go smoothly, you know, like everyone, again, it's easy to look back on hindsight, but I can remember some very stressful moments across my operator experience at Dyne, across my advisor board investor uh, roles across my portfolio for these companies. And so, you know, you, you got to bob and weave. And I think it's a very entrepreneurial thing for someone to uh, be the builder, extending your company's brand and culture and customer and go to market uh, motion internationally. And, and so I think this is that's the that's the last takeaway I'd probably leave is the builder thing is the probably what the builder thing and the resource around you the most important thing. Kyle, this was a, a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time and for all your advice and, and sharing with the audience of uh, Go Global Podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Exciting to talk to somebody in Mexico City as well. I love, I love, I love going global. Uh, you let me know whenever you come to Mexico City after this pandemic's over. Of course, we'll be happy to join you and and, and show you a bit of the city. Can't wait. Thank you, Kyle. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Remember that you can find all episodes on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you're planning to hire a new global team member, Globalization Partners makes it easy to onboard international talent in a matter of days. Go to globalization-partners.com to get started. This is Going Global. Presented by Globalization Partners.